0: Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Timanini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with not one, but two different writers and performers who have one-person shows coming to 59 East 59th later this month. First, I will talk with Brendan George, whose show, A Eulogy for Roman, begins performances on August 8th. This is somewhat of a homecoming for this show and Brendan. It was originally done last summer at 59's East Edinburgh Festival, then it went and actually did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in August of last year. Now it is coming back for a proper run through August 27th. In the show, Brendan plays Milo, a nervous man who is trying to eulogize his late friend. As Brendan and I discussed, there is a little bit of audience participation that is required to make this show work, but as he says, he cringes. At that stuff like I do, so don't worry too much about that. It won't be too painful, he promises. My next conversation is with Broadway alum Robert Montano. His show Small tells part of his real life story growing up in Long Island near Belmont Park as he falls in love with horses and decides that he wants to be a professional jockey. Unfortunately, his body somewhat betrays him, and if you know anything about being a jockey, you know you have to be, as the name of his play says, Small. And unfortunately, his body didn't quite cooperate. Instead, Robert went on to appear on Broadway in such shows as Cats, Kiss of the Spider Woman, On the Town, as well as in the films Chicago and Center Stage. Small will begin performances on August 12th and is set to run through September 2nd. Of course, we will have links in the show notes to where you can see both of these shows. I really enjoyed both of these conversations, and I really have loved everything I've seen at 5090s, 59th, even things that I didn't go in expecting to like, I came out liking it far more than I anticipated. So seeing something that you might not know much about or performers you haven't heard of before is almost always worth the risk. So with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation first with Brendan George and then Robert Montano. Well, Brendan, this is kind of a full circle moment for you. This is a show that you did at 59 East 59th last year, took it to Edinburgh, and now it's coming back for a full run. What is that kind of whirlwind transatlantic trip for this show back and forth and back again been like over the past year or so?
1: Oh, it's it's incredible. I mean, we would have wanted to dream this big, but are cautious to dream this big uh, when you have a seedling of an idea. We, we started this process, actually, the summer of 2020. Peter Charney, our fabulous director, uh, he reached out to me with this vague idea of a show. We weren't really sure. This was the first COVID summer. Uh, so we had a lot of time on our hands. And, you know, we really just focused on the concept of a show at that time that we really wanted to be something that was fundamentally theater, something that needed to be a shared space uh, with people live in the moment. And at that time, you know, he had even said offhand like, oh, you know, something like Edinburgh Fringe. But, you know, that summer, everything was going virtual. The future of the Fringe and theater itself was a little up in the air. And then to get to, in only a matter of two years, which all things said and done was, was pretty short order to get to preview at 59, go all the way to Scotland, which I had never been to. I'd never been to the fringe and and play for international audiences and really see that dream come to fruition was already so rewarding. And then to get to now return to New York uh, and we're getting to adapt the show slightly because it's, it's somewhat immersive. It's somewhat site specific. So we had set it in Scotland for the fringe run and now we're, resetting it in new york for this new york run and uh we're yeah we're just so excited to continue to get to have this experience and share the message of the show and it's just such a gift to perform so i'm so glad the life continues to live on of roman (laughs) yeah
0: yeah absolutely well it it seems that COVID and the pandemic and all of the shutdowns is kind of a perfect time to develop a one-person show you have kind of lived in that world before having done multiple one-person shows but this is the first one where you are credited as the writer as well as the performer and obviously you talked about the collaborators that you worked with on this and, and Peter but how did the kind of the isolation of that time not only in the world but specifically in the in the theater industry lead to kind of this show being one that again, while you've done shows like this in the past, being one that was a little bit more organic to to your creation.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, you're spot on there. I mean, I felt so lucky to even get this call. I, I think we all, as artists and theater makers, it was such a challenging time. We were all going back to the drawing board about what our principles were and what we wanted to create. And we were just re reevaluating and Peter reached out to me in, I think it was July, August time. And it was the perfect moment because we had, maybe against our will, but we had the time and space to really sit on those questions. And he had such a passionate pitch of just, you know, we just ta- at first, before we even got into the specifics of the show, we just got our principles aligned of, you know, what type of Art we want to make, what type of theater we want to make, why is theater imperative, why is the form imperative, what is it about theater that has made it such an enduring art form for thousands of years, you know, and uh, this was our moment to take those big ideas and those big passions that we have and then just play around and see what we could come up with and and see this germ of a show uh, if it could take shape and and then we were we were at the time we started to like do one or two zoom workshops of this piece that me, you know it's audience interactive it's partially improvisational so it was it was a totally wacky process but but to your point just the idea of being actually in a state of isolation really made the need to connect so much more potent for us. And uh, that's, that's where this piece came from. And it's, it's just such a gift. Like I said, it's just really fun to do this show. And I think our audiences have had a ton of fun too. And the fact we get to share in that joy is is such a treat.
0: Well, you talk about the show being fun and it being a joy. The elevator pitch and the log line for the show doesn't make it sound like a whole lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, th- this is a show about a young man giving a eulogy for a friend that does not necessarily always lead to sunshine and rainbows in, in a lot of places, but without giving too much away about the show, because I don't want want you to spoil anything, but what is the journey that Milo takes as he's trying to give the last kind of worldly thoughts about his friend, Roman.
1: Yeah. So, well, actually, you know, what comes to mind is I was just listening to you talk about Barbie (laughs) and I was, well, and I also saw Barbie and what was so fun to me about that movie is uh, this like, it there, it's sort of this fun, energetic pastiche that also has existential dread sort of embedded yeah. into it. And it manages, I thought, very successfully to hold both of those things. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about this show uh, because we have this genre that I think gets used a lot, the dark comedy. And I think we fall into that. I think it can mean a lot of different things. But basically, the logline is true. There's the premise that, Uh, This young man, Milo, played by myself, is hosting a eulogy for a man you've never met named Roman. But Roman is his childhood best friend. And he embarks on this eulogy, but the goal of the ceremony uh, becomes quite challenging for him to complete on his own. And he essentially has to enlist the audience in a voluntary way uh, to honor and complete certain, uh, you know, tasks that he had set out for for the event. So that is that is where the fun really starts to ramp up because uh, Milo flounders a little bit in his own way. And the audience, I think, becomes a bit uh, pitying and and endeared to him. And they they tend to pitch in and help out in in all sorts of surprising ways. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But you did say voluntary because I am somebody who I cringe at the thought of having to be involved with any uh with any performances so again without spoiling too much what's the what are we talking about in terms of voluntary involvement here Uh, are we talking about supplying a line like straight up improv stuff or are they getting up and and dancing what are what are we Mm -hmm. what are we talking about here
1: Matt I am so glad you asked because <laughs> I feel exactly the same when I see audience participation ironically despite me making this show yeah. I oftentimes I I either cringe or I run the other way and it is so important to me that all of the participation is voluntary and comes from a completely consensual place from the uh, attendees of this event and basically you know it, it takes a it takes, several different forms and this is something we had to be very careful about again with that principle in mind peter and i share that virtue we we have had bad experiences of going to a show and then getting essentially picked on or made fun of and that would never be what we want uh a theatrical experience for anyone to be so um basically you know there's at, at different times there's a couple of sort of like floating questions that are offered and then If anyone from the audience feels so inclined, they can respond. Uh, So that's a way that, you know, some days a couple people would talk and some days it kind of just becomes a moment of contemplative thought. Uh, What what always surprised me, the big question mark is like, okay, so you've built the show. You, quote unquote, need audience participation, but you're telling me it's voluntary. Like, well, how does all that work? And I think that's actually what surprised me as an artist. One of the most magical things about the show is when I was first previewing it at 59, it was the first time in front of an audience, people were masked, people were still really hesitant to even go to the theater, let alone kind of blur the boundary between audience and performer. And um, every time, every time we've done it, you know, I just breathe, I let it out and a little bit and slowly but surely you know some of those floating questions will get a thought or two from someone and then suddenly again not to give too much away yeah by the end of the show oftentimes i have had i can tell you several times the whole audience comes up out of their seats and uh it, it is just it gives me goosebumps even talking about it that to me alone is such a an exciting feat you get to experience uh, it's really terrific.
0: Yeah, I I imagine that that especially when, you know, if if there is an audience like you or me or Peter that doesn't love that stuff to see them kind of open up to the specifics of this show and and become more involved and more open to it throughout the show. I'm sure that has to be very rewarding uh, for a performer and and a writer. I, I do wonder that you said you did this for the first time when people were still masked and, you know, hopefully still some people are. You took it over to Scotland, much different audience, I would imagine, uh, mm-hmm. than than in New York. Now you're getting ready to bring it back there. Has there been a, a, a significant difference in terms of the audience reaction, the audience involvement between the two different runs that you've had? And then are you anticipating something even different from those two previous ones when it's back in New York starting on August 8th?
1: Yeah, that is a great question, too. We learned trial by fire like i said i've never been to scotland never been to the fringe and what i found was in scotland i think the nature of the edinburgh fringe lends to this people were really on board with the audience interaction in scotland in fact they were almost overboard <laughs> involved yeah, uh, like yeah. there were moments because the show is so loose it can feel like you're not at a play at all and that that's by design you know we want it to feel like a young man is hosting a memorial so people would suddenly start talking and doing things at all sorts of unexpected moments that that one woman came in with a continental breakfast and was eating waffles in the middle of her. her. you know, and Chad, and she was the first person to speak to with a mouth full of waffle. And I was like, you know what, you, you really made yourself at home. Uh, and uh, that was in its own way, you know, exactly what we would want. Uh, one guy took a phone call, you know, all these, these things that normally break the conventions of, of, what we understand as theater etiquette are actually, you know, within reason they're permitted in this space. You know, we still want everyone to be respectful. We've never had any hecklers or people there to, to cause trouble. But what's fun is the beauty of, you know, that it is a live event. It isn't exactly scripted. So when people feel compelled, they can go for it. Um, and anyway, back to to New York, I think just when we started with it, people were a little bit more, well, frankly, they were just a little bit more trained as audience members, as this is what I do as an audience member. This is the moment I do participate. This is the moment I don't. Um, and neither approach is really, quote unquote, better than the other. I have a feeling on this run coming back, uh, people in New York will be a little bit looser. And I also think I've gotten better as the show has gone on in sure. Letting those organic moments happen and and finding that uh that spontaneity that really defines each performance for its own
0: yeah the and I'm sure the mask mandates will you know change some of that as well in New York. they give people a little bit more feeling like there's not a a barrier between you and them, but as you've done this you you talk about there is fun to you know a pretty somber what what you would think is a pretty somber topic what is what is that vibe? you kind of mentioned the whole you know Barbie being able to play in both worlds what is the what is the the vibe and the feeling that you're going for with this while still being able to harness into the emotions of a of a eulogy, but so audience members know as they go in this is what we're aiming for
1: yeah i I think it's you know there there's parts of the Barbie uh, metaphor that hold and, and parts that don't this is almost <laughs> if if that's like a a bright sunny picture that then has sudden dark spots this is maybe the opposite lens where it's set up more as a it is set as a memorial service it is a serious circumstance but then these you know kind of euphoric moments and and group experiences happen within that framework of all the conventions that we understand to be a memorial or or if maybe we haven't been to, I actually, that was an, an interesting challenge is I, I haven't been to a ton of memorials, sure. uh, thankfully, knock on wood. And I, um, that was part of the research of the show is like, okay, well, what's the structure of a typical funeral service? How is a eulogy typically structured? And so we kind of did our research into that and then then once we understood the conventions, we we burst that wide open as to what could happen at that sort of event. Um, so, yeah, as far as the tone, I do think, you know, in earnest, I, I think everyone should, you know, come in. And oftentimes it's, you know, you'll see the urn and I'm wearing my uh-huh. formal attire and people people get the tone. They're talking softly at the beginning of the show. And uh, that also that gives not just the character the journey, but it also gives the audience the real journey, too, is because we come in as strangers at this eulogy and then we leave as much more.
0: Yes. Uh, friends, family, potentially more than that, depending on the level of involvement from each person. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so to kind of bring it in, into a, a nice, uh, pretty little package here as as we wrap things up. A eulogy for Roman. What do we need to know about Roman going in? Do we need to know anything? Is there anything that we can kind of come in and 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 think about who this person was uh, before we start, or is that all you know kind of to be revealed throughout the show?
1: All reveal. All will be revealed. I would say uh, no prerequisites to attendance, and all I would want from the perfect audience member is to just come in with an open mind and an adventurous spirit. Um, and even if you're cautiously adventurous from the safety of your seat, that is just as welcome as well. And, uh, yeah, I I think what's, what's nice is, yeah, we, we don't, we just want people to come as they are. And that's what gives the show. The rich texture is just every night meeting each other and seeing each other in that different way and seeing the people who come in the room. It, it, can create a pretty different performance night to night. And that's that's as rich as anything that could be scripted, you know, is just what every person brings when they bring them their whole self. Then the show is just there to uh, really support that and, and give light to that.
0: So let me ask this. This might be a question that has no answer or one you don't want to reveal, which is totally fine. Mm. Are the people at this uh, memorial, at this eulogy, do they know Roman? Did did the audience members know Roman? Uh, no, no. Well,
1: no, no. the The premise is that this very unusual and nervous young man wants to memorialize his best friend, and he's just moved to New York, and he doesn't know anyone here, but he wants to do this ceremony for him, so he has invited strangers and that he he reached out to 50, e 59 theaters to host a, a eulogy for a night that they lent the space to him. And, and that's really, you know, that's where we start to blend uh, blur those lines a little bit about the site specific and immersive nature is you really are intended to come as you are. If, if Matt, you make it to the show, which we'd love to have you, you come as Matt and you don't know who Roman is and you don't need to pretend to know him. You don't need to pretend to be anybody else it's it's all very true to your experience to who you are and to the space that then we create together
0: very interesting well my my last question here you Took the show over to Edinburgh last year. They're getting ready to do uh, the festival again here in the next few weeks. I don't exactly know yeah. what the dates are off the top of my head. What was your perspective being there as a not only a performer, but an American and then also a theater lover? How much did you get to see outside of your show? What was the uh, what was your takeaway from the experience? Recommendations for anybody who is thinking about going either as a performer or a theater lover? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on yeah. the French festival?
1: Well, it was it was incredible. It was super challenging as a creator as well, but it also was it was really just unlike anything I've experienced. I did get to meet Phoebe Waller-Bridge, so you know that's a that's a win. That's a win. That's a win. That's a reason to go. Uh, So I can't guarantee that, but for me, that was a big. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I would say, you know, I had probably a misconception that after a pretty successful preview run at 59 in New York city. I was gonna, you know, come off the plane in Scotland and everyone would say, wow, an interactive <laughs> one man show at coming straight from New York. We can't wait to go see that. And it was not the case when we first got there. Um, it, it, you really have to hustle. There's just, and this is more advice for, for creators and artists who are going Uh, with the project is there's just such a saturated market. I think there's over 3,000, this year close to 3,500 different events that are happening in one month. So, you know, when they say go on the Royal Mile and flyer, they're not kidding around because we, I mean, unfortunately we didn't get much sleep, but we were out there talking to any and everybody about this thing and we needed to because, as a team with almost no budget, with almost no personnel, it was just Peter and I who went out there. Uh, This was a completely organic, uh, grassroots campaign that did end up becoming the Cinderella story that you would want. We ended up getting audiences, we ended up getting critics who actually really changed the game for us because we ended up pretty unanimously getting positive reception out in Scotland. And then people were seeing that Coverage and became increasingly intrigued. And by the time we were finished, we, we the first show we had four tickets sold. We had only four people oh, in the audience. Two of them were uh, not native English speakers, which was great, but was a little bit challenging with the potential for interaction. So you know, it was it was daunting. I, I thought to myself, "Gosh, can we even get through this show?" And then by the end of the run, we were having full houses, and that it was just so. Uh, Yeah, it was a really rewarding trajectory. So as an artist, I'd say get out there, hustle. And as a theater lover, gosh, just like, you know, don't be afraid to make a decision 15 minutes beforehand to just go see something that sounds completely unusual or unlike anything you've heard or seen before. And you may be rewarded. I saw some puppetry that I've, I'm not, that well-versed in in puppet shows (laughs) that still sticks with me as some of the best work out there that i saw so it's it's a totally amazing multi-discipline festival comedy theater dance the works so if you're going i'm jealous i'll be here doing my show but when you come back i you in New York.
0: <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's a great story about, you know, what it takes to hustle and, and have success over there because you're right, unless you are Phoebe Waller-Bridge or Alan Cumming or Patrick Stewart or one of these people who pops in to do yeah. shows there on occasion, there's just so much. And I've never been, but from everything I understand, like everything's spread out. Like you think, oh, it's a festival, mm-hmm. so it's all in the same place. But no, it's all over town. It's miles apart or kilometers oh, yeah. apart. Um, so you have to kind of, really do the work to build an audience. And I'm so glad that you did. And hopefully the same will happen back in New York City. And uh, yeah. I, this is fascinating. I live in Orlando, so I'm not sure if I'm going to be there while you're running, but I, I hope I do get a chance to see it. And anybody who uh, loves this type of work, which is uh, the, the type of shows that we like to champion here. The, the creative, groundbreaking, uh, one-person stuff is always fascinating to us. So I hope you have a fantastic run, and uh, hopefully we'll see more of this show and, and more of your one-person shows in the future as well.
1: Thank you so much, Matt. This was really a pleasure.
0: And again, we will have information on how you can get tickets to a eulogy for Roman in the show notes. Performances are set to begin on August 8th. Next up is my conversation with Robert Montano, whose play Small begins performances at 59 East 59th on August 12th. So, Robert, I am somebody who I will admit, I am definitely allergic to anything that has fur or feathers, including horses. So <laughs> tell me, although I've been to the Belmont Stakes before, I, I went there uh, a year after I graduated from college to see the Belmont Stakes, but so for somebody who didn't grow up with horses and, you know, would probably die if I rode one for either from falling, from falling or from allergies, what is it about horses that spoke so much to you as a young person growing up near Belmont Park.
2: Well, it was a combination of not 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 only the horses, I mean, the horses, I mean, the, that was the first thing that I saw. And when I did, I was just taken by the massive size of them um and also uh just how exquisite their muscles and and their energy uh was. It was something that spoke to me uh like like dogs do i mean like i I call horses overgrown dogs and um and that that you know and and ironically though uh for my first couple of years of working on the racetrack i was sneezing all the time and i realized okay yeah i was i was allergic too you know but <laughs> that didn't stop me i i dealt with it i just thought it was like maybe the hay you know in the barn area um but yeah that never stopped me i just i just you know the horses um their magic, I, I. it's hard to explain uh, other than that, than what they were to me. I mean, I just saw that. And then to see these little men get on these 1,200-pound animals and go at the speed that they're going. You know, I got to say, it's one thing uh, to watch it on TV, and there's another when you're actually watching it live. And to see them just like, just just run right past you i mean that they're they're fast they're 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 gorgeous i mean they remind me of uh ballet dancers in a way um but running yeah (laughs)
0: absolutely i i think even for those of us that you know aren't horse people if you've seen a horse race up close or even on tv like you understand like that power and that speed is something very unique and and something that is kind of awe-inspiring but also for some of us probably a little bit terrifying as well but you talked about the horses were the first thing what else was it about the whole world of racing that spoke to you
2: well you know um i was a i was a kid that uh was bullied uh growing up and when i saw uh these these jockeys mounting these horses you know uh i thought that was fascinating and also uh the respect that they were shown, you know, uh, in the paddock area with crowds of people. I mean, back, back in the seventies, um, you can go to a racetrack at Obama, you know, on a, on a, on a Wednesday and it was full. It was, it, it, it had a nice crowd of people there and to see them getting the respect from the people and the pageantry of it all. Um, uh, there was something very theatrical about it. Uh, that spoke to me and i i just fell in love with it instantly because of these men getting the respect that they got and and uh the theatricality of it all yeah and it's a sport you know so i, I just I, I was always very athletic when i was a kid baseball uh was where i was uh actually thinking of going to you know to to be i thought i was going to you know, play shortstop in the New York Mets because, you know, Buddy Harrelson was my hero. And I I kinda outgrew it. And not to sound uh, I mean, I don't know how you how you say this without sounding uh <laughs> not <laughs> humble, but I I I was I was pretty damn good, you know, at, at shortstop and I had a I had a great bat as well. And um I just kinda, you know, got bored of it a little bit when I until I saw, you know, the thoroughbreds, you know, and uh, when my mother took me to the racetrack, I was like, holy, holy crap. This is this is a whole other world that I have never been exposed to. And I just instantly, instantly fell in love with it. I, You couldn't get enough books in front of me and pictures, and, and uh, I couldn't stop pestering my mother to take me again, you know, tomorrow, <laughs> the next day. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, your, your show small, which is getting ready to have a run at 5090s, 59th coming up, starting on, uh, on August 12th, it kind of dives into your real life experiences around professional horse racing. Uh, I don't know if it was exclusively at Belmont uh, or not, but I think for a lot of us, when you start talking about what goes on behind the scenes at racetracks there, that conjures up. Some seedy uh, imaginations, maybe something that Hughes a little too close to Damon Runyon and Guys and Dolls, but uh, I know that it is a world, at least in your experience, that can be a little scary, can be um, colorful, uh, without getting too much into the story that you that you tell in this show. What were some of those eye-opening experiences to you that like showed you that it was more than just a love of horses, it was more than just the respect that. Uh, that the crowd showed the jockeys that there was something a little bit more underhanded going on behind uh, the stalls and away from the track itself
2: well i'll i'll be honest i mean i i um i had been approached um in the past uh to write about you know uh things that had gone on uh in the past uh i honestly i i i veered away from that because my whole purpose uh of writing this story was to uh to pay an homage to the racetrack and, and not bring it down. I think there's enough controversy that's going around it right now, which is um, yeah, I think I think, you know, some of it, some of it, some is justified, but a lot of it, you know, uh, is not. And and um as far as back in the day, you know, with any kind of crookedness, I mean, I only heard stories. I have never really been privy to it, uh, aside from my cousin who was approached, you know, by uh, you know some seedy people in the past, but you know he put that fire out real quick. And um, I was never really uh, concerned about it. That was not my whole purpose. I was just a, a kid who just wanted to ride, and not 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 just ride at you know some place where you pay you know twenty five dollars to go for a joy ride. I'm talking about a thoroughbred racehorse and being in the thick of it all, in the competition. My concern. And my, my focus was was really my weight and just uh, praying to God to keep me small every day. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, most men want to be, you know, tall, dark, and handsome. I All I was concerned about was being, you know, uh, small, skinny, and emaciated. I just wanted to make the weight, you know, uh, because I was such a tall rider, and not just tall, but Big boned, you know, and uh, when you're that, when you have bones like that, you fill out and you're really fighting mother nature. So my concern was, was that, that if I wasn't able to make the weight, I wasn't able to play in the game. And um, I, you know, I didn't really concern myself with any of that other stuff. That was, that was none of my business. And uh, it was not something that uh, distracted me in any way. I was totally focused on on race riding and uh, making that dream come true. A buddy of mine, um, you know, uh, we, we we grew up together. And thank God for him that he took uh, the photos that he took of me well, when I was riding back then. But I was telling him after a while, I was like, you know, please, you know, you got to stop. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So you have plenty of time to take all the photos. And uh that's how i thought you know i i i was so disciplined and and so uh tunnel visioned that this is all i ever wanted to do you know this is all i ever wanted to do was to be on the back of these horses and uh to be one with them and just to be in sync and it's it's like a dance you know you you're dancing together um and that's that was my focus yeah
0: yeah and Obviously, very well done on the transition there. Your life did move from dancing with a horse on a track to actual dancing. When did that change take place? What was the impetus there? You know, a lot of the press materials talk about realizing the darker side of the sport, but you kind of talked a little bit more about maybe the size of it. Was it just did you just get too big to be a jockey? Is that what pushed you in a different direction?
2: Yeah, I got too big and, and I, I was struggling. I mean, just struggling to make weight that you know, I mean, and, and this is what kind of exposes a little bit of my story. And I'm not saying this of other jockeys, because there's some riders, you know, once they hit like five foot five, five foot six, you know, they go like, Okay, clearly God is telling me something. I'm not made for this, you know. Not me. I I took myself to extremes, uh of places with drugs, of uh, running, you know, with with uh, saran wrap and plastics and, and sweatsuit and a goose down jacket and I couldn't pray for any more hotter weather on that particular day, hoping that it was ninety degrees. And I would and I would hit the track and I'd be running around either the uh the turf course at Belmont and you know, or my neighborhood and And I would just run miles. I mean, I got up to uh, 17 miles a day, a day, a day. And that, that was something that I, that I knew I had to give myself several hours. But I also knew that every time when I was running, that all I could envision was looking at myself, you know, walking into the paddock, you know, cock of the walk, you know, with a, with a, uh, a whip in my hand not that I was ever whip happy. I wasn't, I wasn't that rider. I I rode with my hands and I spoke to them with my hands, you know, but I, uh, you know, twirling the whip and just feeling, you know, that people were watching and, you know, respecting the little guy. And and as far as, you know, being little, you know, I was just skinny, but I was tall, but I was extremely skinny. Um, but yeah, I, I put myself through something crazy and I, you know, I, uh, was constantly hitting the bathroom to do what I had to do if I ate a certain amount of food, which was, which was not a lot. Um, and I would, uh, I would, like I said, take, you know, dietary pills, you know, and, and other stuff that, that, uh, that I talk about in the play. Uh, but, uh, I put myself through extremes that most people would think, you know, you're absolutely nuts, <laughs> doing what you're doing, but the love of riding and the thrill of it, you know, nobody, nobody, nobody will ever know what I am really talking about unless you are in the thick of it and you're being loaded into the starting gate and you're feeling your horse and you're feeling the power underneath your legs and you're feeling the energy of the horse loaded into the gate he's ready to break other horses are a little fractious you know in the starting gate they're they're rubbed up they're ready to go you're trying to keep your horse quiet and calm but he's getting a little nervous you know and you're feeling the excitement of it all and you just want to break from that gate and get into the thick of it and 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 position yourself and when you did you know uh, it it was the most incredible feeling and then back in the 70s when you had huge crowds of people and you're coming around the turn, you could actually hear the crowd just roaring and you're just, you know, you're pushing and driving for that wire and you're hearing the crowd. It's just such an exhilarating feeling, you know. And though I I, 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 I never want to race, you know, I would always pop out off that that horse, you know, give him a big smooch. And, you know, I I would hear people yelling at me, you know, Montano, what are you smiling about? Go back to Puerto Rico, you know, you're good for nothing. And I'm just smiling and just at least, you know, I did what I could with the horse. And even though the horse, you know, may not have won the race, he did the best or she did the best that they could, you know, and that was my job as a jockey, to figure them out, to get them to run the best that they could. And... It has nothing to do with whipping. It has everything to do with hearing them, feeling them, letting them let you know the best way they want to run. And you and all you could do is, you know, uh just lead them into that and sometimes every now and then push them, you know, to uh to to, they sometimes they need to be jostled a little bit to, to uh to to make that move, you know. But it's about it's about hearing them and speaking to them.
0: So where's the connection uh, with dancing? I imagine, you know, I'm a sports person as as well, grew up uh, playing uh, playing baseball and basketball, and I still yeah. love sports as much as I love theater. So I understand the, the similarities between the mindsets that you have to have between acting and sports. But I would imagine that's even more so when it comes to dancing, which is as physical and athletically and and, and endurancely taxing. As practically, you know, as practically any sport that you could possibly have, was that a, a fairly easy switch for you to go from the discipline and the hard work and the physicality of horse riding to dancing, or did that take some time to figure out as well?
2: Well, the structure of everything that you just said, the discipline, you know, the passion, and uh, 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 working hard. I mean, working hard has never been something I ever shied away from. I I, I enjoy working hard. Um, and I was able to, to transfer, uh, that, that discipline and that structure, uh, into dance. Um, dancing is something that, uh, I do talk about early on in the play because, you know, my mother was always yelling for me to come down and watch the Ed, Ed Sullivan show, uh, while Peter Gennaro was on, uh, on, or, or Cheeto Rivera, you know, who ironically I end up dancing with. You know, years later, and she and I were, were, were really great friends till this day. As a matter of fact, she's one of the producers on this show, mm-hmm. uh, and um, <clears throat> so i i um i uh, i was I was always watching, you know, Wonderama, uh, you know, and yelling out to my mom because it kids they would have they would pick three kids to dance for a bicycle. Uh, and I would, I would see the, 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 they're all doing the same step over and over and over the same step, and I'm yelling, Ma, Ma, put me on this show, you know. I could win a bicycle because I could, you know, do so many <laughs> different steps, you know. I had choreography down. Um, but, you know, I had my heroes, you know, back then. Uh, uh, watching Soul Train was, was, was one of the uh, greats for me. You know, but I, I was also really, really smitten by the movie of West Side Story. Um, and then later on in years, you know, uh, Saturday Night Fever. And um, yeah, so, so something tragic happened um, while I was uh, uh, riding, you know, uh, at Monmouth Park racetrack. And um, somebody very close to me had passed away, and this person, uh was a jockey, and uh, I didn't know what to do with my life after that I uh became very withdrawn and uh probably depressed i mean uh, we didn't really know back then you know but i i I think I was depressed and and uh i just I wasn't doing much of anything. I was galloping horses at the racetrack. uh I was uh not riding races anymore. I was just too big. I just didn't know what to do with my life. And um, my brother Stephen uh, was grooming horses, you know, on the racetrack. I I brought him on the racetrack with me. He he uh, he fell in love with it as much as I did. But he already he knew he wasn't going to be a jockey. He didn't want to ride. He just wanted to groom horses and uh, maybe be a trainer uh, out of that. Um, but you know, we were uh, working at Saratoga Racetrack uh, after this person had passed away. Uh, and he said to me, you know, you, you know, you really got to get out of this funk. You you know, let's go to the rafters disco, you know, here in Saratoga. And, and I will go there and mind you, I, I was, I was very skinny. I had major buck teeth. I mean, I could hang clothing off of them. Uh, that's how far away from my, my mouth it was. And, uh, and split. And, um, you know, I I I, I, uh, I was dancing. I was that guy dancing by myself, but I was dancing more out of anger. I, I was feeling that 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 angry dance, you know, just trying to get something out unconsciously. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, after going to the clubs after a while with my brother, that I was starting to feel different about it. And I was starting to feel good about it after a while. I was feeling that, this was a means of escape that physically I can get something out. But at the same time, I was feeling in tune with the music, like I would feel in tune. I'm being on top of a, the back of a horse. And it wasn't until, you know, uh, girls, girls started to ask me to dance because they felt I, I, I had rhythm that you I, know, that I was a, a good dancer that, uh, that, uh, I felt like, wow, you know, maybe there's something to this. And then after that, you know, trying to follow uh, John Travolta's, you know, th- uh, thread, <laughs> you know, entering myself at the dance contest, and and uh, and then things started to change for me. Then I started to take it a little more seriously. And I won't say too much because uh, it's part of the uh, the ending of the show. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll leave it there. I will we'll wrap up on this without giving away, like you said, the ending of the show or any. Uh, any further details that you get into if people are going to come over to see small during August, uh, running through September 2nd, what is, what is the vibe of the show? What do they, what do they get out of it? Obviously it goes deep into your own personal life, the the highs and the lows, but what is the, what is the feeling that they can expect while sitting in that theater?
2: Well, you know, I mean, it, yes, it, it is highs and, and there are lows, you know, and, and, and when I wrote this, I, I, wanted, I wanted to not only uh, uh, share my, my, uh, the, the good things that happened, but also my blemishes, you know, because I'm just the average Joe like anybody else. But it ends triumphantly, and people end up feeling good at the end of the story. And I've had people come up to me, you know, and say to me, Jesus, you make me want to try the things that I've always been fighting to do and now you've given me the impetus to to go for it. Um so yeah it it ends on a very very upbeat up note and um and they walk out of there dancing. Yeah.
0: Well I I think that is always a good way to leave a theater is is upbeat and dancing. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. It it's fascinating like I said it's a world that because of my own um, messed up allergies is, is something that I can only really appreciate from afar, but it is always fascinating and, and thrilling to see those things happen. Like I said, one time I, I went to Belmont and had an absolutely tremendous time. So uh, I, I look forward to the show and everybody having a chance to check it out. So thank you very much and have a, a an incredible run at fifty nineties fifty 59th coming up here in just a few weeks.
2: I just want to say that, you know, this is something that i think you know will also get people to go back to the racetrack to go back to beaumont after seeing this story and they go like wow because i've had a lot of people come up to me after the show and say wow i've never been to the races now i need to go i need to see these things you know and experience it you know i'm so intrigued you know um so uh like i said this is my homage to the racetrack you know what comes you know with the highs are lows but mostly triumphant i mean it's a it's a it's a beautiful sport it's the sport of kings and i hope people will continue and 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 go to the racetrack if they've never experienced it in their lives so thank you uh for giving me the opportunity to talk about it i appreciate it